0: When we began uh, this series from the New Testament book of Romans back last fall, we were uh, committed to doing something that we had never done before in preaching through a book. We, We decided that at each main section, after we were through with each main section, we'd stop and we'd review that section, kind of summarize what it taught, in the hopes that not only would we have a better understanding of what that particular section said, but that we would also be able to know how that section fit with the broader book so that we could all answer the question when we were done with our uh, series in Romans in August, what was Romans about? Uh, what, was, what was Paul's purpose in, in writing all of this? And so that's why we are today going to stop having just finished Romans 9, 10, and 11, having taken seven weeks walking ...through that particular passage of Scripture to summarize what it says in the hopes that we understand it better. But before we begin, let me say congratulations for having now made it through the hard part of the book of Romans. Everybody needs a merit badge. Everybody ought to high-five one another because we've made it through this section. From here on out, the book of Romans becomes very nuts and bolts. It becomes very, very practical in all of its instructions. So for the rest of the summer... We'll look forward to how our faith in Jesus helps us just be decent to one another in the church and outside of the church. We'll see how uh, our faith in Jesus shapes our attitudes and our actions towards secular government. We will see how it drives our acceptance of differing opinions among Christians on non-essential matters of conscience. So with that coming, knowing that all of that kind of stuff is coming, let's dive into our summary this morning. During the 2020 stay-at-home order, I preached through the Old Testament book of Job. You're probably familiar with the trajectory of that book. It is the story of an upright and faithful follower of God named, of course, Job, whom God permits Satan to use as a test case for the reason why people follow God. See, Satan contends that people only worship God for the good things that he gives. And so God permits Satan to torment Job without any cause to prove to Satan that people like Job follow God out of devotion to God and not because of the good things that he gives. And Job proves God right, but it's not as if there aren't some dicey moments along the way. In fact, at one point, Job essentially calls God to appear in a court over which Job is presiding to answer for his character and to answer for his treatment of Job. And Job gets his wish, but let's just say he kind of immediately regrets issuing a summons to God. He'll pass the test, but he couldn't resist demanding that God answer to him for his actions. That's human nature. When we don't understand what is going on in our lives or in our world, we want answers. Now, obviously, God is not obligated to give those answers, nor does God require us to defend him when others lodge claims against his character, but that's exactly how Paul sees himself in this section of the book called Romans that he wrote. He views himself here as kind of God's trial lawyer. And he puts on a defense of God in Romans 9 through 11, and here's why he feels the need to do so. Find Romans 1:16 in your copy of God's Word. The two verses that I'm about to read are the thesis statement for Paul's argument through the book of Romans. They are the rudder that sails uh, the, histor- the, the rhetorical ship that Paul is taking us on, and, and here's what they say. So what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is arguing that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone has the power to save anyone, that it is activated through no moral or religious effort on our part but by faith alone, and that it is available to anyone, both the adherents of the Jewish faith and also to Gentile pagans. And to navigate that argument he he begins in Romans 3 by arguing that faith is necessary for salvation because all of us are such hopeless sinners that it would be impossible for even our good to have any benefit to God in gaining our salvation but the faithful Jew would hear that and they say well what do you mean I'm a sinner what do you mean God's wrath is against me I'm an observant Jew I'm not a sinner Then in Romans 4 through 8, Paul makes the point that salvation is obtained from God only when the object of faith is Jesus Christ and by trusting in what he did on the cross to provide salvation. That is mankind's only hope. In other words, the Old Testament law that faithful Jews had claimed was the appropriate object of faith if one was going to obtain salvation was insufficient To save them, to which the faithful Jew would claim, now now you're not only saying that I'm not good enough, you're saying that the Torah, the law, the Old Testament is not good enough to save me. And as far as they were concerned, that was absolute blasphemy. So it is little wonder that the Jews were so opposed, sometimes, many times, most of the times, violently opposed to the message of the gospel. Very few of them, because of all of this, were coming to faith in Jesus. Far fewer than those of Gentile background who were coming to faith in Jesus. And it was leading the small number of Jewish believers that there were to wonder why. Why had God made it so hard for the Jewish people to find faith in Jesus? Had God, somewhere along the way, changed the rules leaving all of those who were Jewish hopeless. So Paul devotes this section of Romans that we've just gone through, 9, 10, and 11, to defend God and his actions towards the Jewish people, and he has kind of a three-pronged defense. The first from Romans 9 is that God is faithful even when his ways are hard to understand. The Jewish people who had become believers were wondering if all of the promises that God had made to Israel, which basically served as the anchor point for their worldview, all of the promises that they were his chosen and special people, they were wondering if they had been forgotten by God or were being ignored altogether. And Paul argues that God is remaining faithful to those promises And it's proven by the fact that there were some Jews who were coming to Jesus. Paul was someone from a Jewish background who had come to Jesus. They didn't really have a problem getting and understanding that. What they were really having a hard time with was understanding why all Jewish people had not decided to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And Paul's answer to that question in Romans 9, though hard to hear, still demonstrates that God is faithful. Paul points out that having the blood of Abraham was never a guarantee of a person's special status before God. The Old Testament makes clear that God made choices throughout the branches of Abraham's family tree and some received the promises of God's favor, initially given to Abraham, some had not. That's what was happening in Paul's world. God was calling some in Abraham's family to faith in Jesus, but he wasn't calling all to faith in Jesus. And because he was calling so few to faith in Jesus, the evangelistic efforts of the early church had turned to the Gentiles who were coming to faith in much larger numbers, which Paul says proves that God is being faithful to his promises. How so? Because the conversion of the Gentile world was a fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham that through him all of the nations of the world would be blessed. So for those who question whether God had been right, faithful in his actions towards the Jewish people, Paul says absolutely he has remained faithful to his promises to them. And then he goes on to argue in Romans 10 that God is fair primarily because God offers salvation to whoever calls on God through Jesus to save them. Remember Paul's thesis. The gospel has the power to save both Jew and Gentile. No one who called upon the name of Jesus, regardless of religion or race, of anything, would be turned away. He's saying God is fair in making it all funnel through Jesus. And Paul's third point concerning God's character in relation to Israel is that God is not finished with them. The Jewish people, both then and now, are spiritually characterized by the rejection of Jesus as Messiah... But Paul says in Romans 11, before the world ends and eternity begins, God will do a mighty work among the Jews to bring them to Christ. Therefore, proving that God's purposes, glorious purposes toward the people of Israel would never be thwarted. So I hope you've been able to see how this section fits in with the book. His thesis has been that the power of, of the gospel is sufficient to save both Jew and Gentile on the basis of faith alone. He says, You need faith, Romans 1 through 3, because we are all hopeless sinners. That the object of that faith, Romans 4 through 8, needs to be Jesus. He is the only one who can save us. And Romans 9 through 11 shows that God is still working to save the Jewish people through Jesus. He's not finished with them, even though there are so few coming to faith in Jesus. In Paul's time so there you go that's the summary but here's the thing I'm not a seminary professor you didn't come here for a theology lesson what my calling is is to give you a word from God's Word to God's people that's what a pastor is Does And so we can have understanding of how the book works, but if we're not probing underneath the surface and finding out how what Paul did 2,000 years ago in three very admittedly difficult chapters of a book called Romans impact us, then we've all wasted our time here today. God did not call us to be merely informed. He's called us to be faithful. And so... How does a group of Gentile believers, 2,000 years removed from what Paul is explaining here, who view God's actions towards the Jewish people really as nothing more than a curiosity, how is it that what he said to them then uh, impacting us? Well, let's hold these three arguments up to the light again and see first how the truth God is faithful, unpacked in Romans 9, is meaningful to us. In that chapter, Paul argued again that God keeps his promises. And the primary mechanism that Paul uses to demonstrate God's faithfulness is highlighting something called God's electing purpose, the doctrine of election. Here's what our church's statement of faith does in defining the doctrine of election. It says, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. That's fancy talk for saying it is how he saves sinners. This means that we, all of us, are ultimately saved by the will of God. Now, folks, there's a wideness among the elders and staff and church at large in how to best understand what it means to be saved by the will of God, to be elected to salvation. There are some who believe that God's election is based on his foreknowledge. In other words, God, knowing the end before the beginning, sees out into all of history, sees those that would choose him, and then elects them to be saved on the basis of the choice he sees them making. There are others who believe that God's election determines his foreknowledge. In other words, determine what he knows. In other words, God, before time began, chose those who would be saved and therefore his knowledge of what will be is based on his decision as to what will be. That's my opinion. That's what I think Romans 9 and the rest of scripture teaches. But it may come as a surprise to you. It's not my job to teach you to be perfect reflections of my theology to believe what I believe. Like me, you are going to have to work through Romans 9 and the rest of Scripture with the Lord and arrive at your own conclusion. But regardless of what you end up believing about the process of election, election itself demonstrates God's faithfulness beyond any doubt. And let me show you in a very practical way why that is so. Look at Romans nine. Verses 15 and 16. Romans 9 verses 15 and 16. Where it says, quoting from the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is the it that depends entirely on God? The it is your salvation. The it is is the mercy of God shown us in saving us. We are saved by the will of God, and he will be faithful to save those he has willed to save. Here's why that matters. It matters because in the Blue Valley universe today, two campuses, a mission, multiple services, there will be people who will come in and who will say, God can't save me. God can't save me. I have in my background something that that most people don't know about, and on the basis of that, God can't save me. Then there will be others who will come in and say, well, I believe I, I was saved, but since salvation, this has happened. Not many people know about it. Maybe nobody knows about it. And because of that, I I can't see how God would continue to allow me to be saved. What Romans 9 tells us is that when God wills the salvation of a person, and you can decide how that will and the mechanics of all of that works, when God wills the salvation of a person, He then is responsible not just for the starting of it, but the keeping of it. If you've been saved, he'll finish the work. He is faithful to keep you unto himself until that day. That is why we have this further in our statement of faith. It says all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet, they will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. We are kept... By the power and purposes of God for salvation, God is faithful to save those he's willed to save. Next, Romans 10 tells us God is fair. God is fair in his means by which salvation is accomplished. The probably most famous verses in Romans, maybe some of the most famous in the Bible, are these. Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is fair to offer salvation in Jesus to whoever calls upon him for it. It is not based on our our moral attainment. It is not based on our ethnicity. It is not based on our religion. Whoever calls on the name of Jesus to be saved will be saved. Let's go through a little exercise this morning. This will be fun in a way that's probably not helpful to you as far as your your spirit life goes. It will make you feel very judgmental for just a second. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think right now of the three people that if anybody's going to hell, they are. All right? You've all got the list. You've all got the list. I want you to think of the three biggest sinners that you can think of in the world today. Now, it's it's almost certain that you didn't include yourself in that list because of self-righteousness. But it's also almost certain that you don't know this person because the only reason you know this person is bad is because you consume memes 24-7 on social media and they have told you that person is bad and so you have ingested that. But whatever, we've all got our list. All right, you have your three. I don't want you to say them out loud. I want to stay happy and employed. All right, so I want you to think of your three. All right. Insert their name if blank called on Jesus to save them he would if horrible person who is diametrically opposed to everything i believe and want to be if this person called on the name of Jesus To save them, he would. That's how big the mercy of God is. And that's how fair he is. Anyone who calls upon him for salvation will receive it. But Paul doesn't just stop there. I want you to pay particular attention to the role Jesus' followers have in making him known. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10:14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe of him uh, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? God's offer of salvation is made known to a world that needs to hear it through the proclamation of of his followers. And folks, I'm afraid that sometimes we are so busy debating one another about how the doctrine of election works or the role of women in the church or the age of the earth or the the timing of the Lord's return that we never get around to actually sharing the gospel that we claim to be ardent defenders of. You are not a faithful Christian if you're arguing online with other Christians about stuff that we're all wrong about anyway. But you are a faithful follower of Jesus. If warts and all, clumsy presentation and all, you're building a relationship with neighbors to share Jesus with them. And you're active in sharing your faith with friends, with classmates, with co-workers. That's what faithfulness looks like, not argumentation. And the reason that we can be successful in that is because literally everybody is a candidate for salvation. Because God is fair in offering it to whoever calls upon him. God is faithful, God is fair. Finally, remember in Romans 11, Paul is making sure that his readers know that God is not finished, that the final word has not been written on the story of Jesus and the Jewish people. And Paul, because he recognizes that there's not a period at the end of anybody's life sentence as long as they're still alive and kicking, uses this as his personal motivation to continue to share the gospel with anyone at any opportunity. But it was also Paul's motivation to worship knowing that God's purposes are never thwarted, no matter how bleak things might seem in the world or in a person's life at any given moment, prompted Paul to close this section with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What is he saying there? He's saying that the world and every human life is soaked with the purposes of God. Purposes that he is still accomplishing. Purposes which may remain a mystery to us, but whose solution is the same for everyone. The gospel and sharing it with others. He's not finished. So as we close, let's celebrate the fact that God is faithful. If you've given your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, He's going to keep you. He's, He's tenacious in His keeping. Let's celebrate the fact that you don't know anybody who, if they called on the name of the Lord, God would reject them. God is faithful and fair to save, and he's still working in our world at this moment to bring his purposes in individual lives and globally to its appointed end. That's a God worth worshiping and a God worth praying to. Let's go to him right now.